Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. The former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, recently launched a book called Values, Building a Better World for All. Earlier this month, he did a Zoom interview for the Irish Times with economist Chris Johns. Later in the show, you'll hear Mark and Chris chat about the book and some of the big issues facing global policymakers today in the wake of the pandemic. But first, I asked Chris Johns to give us a flavour for the book and to remind us a little bit about Mark Carney's career to date. Here we go. Chris, you're very welcome. Let's start with the book first. It's called Values, an interesting title. Uh, what's behind it? Well, it's, um, as you say, very interesting. The, the title Values comes with the S at the end in brackets, in parentheses. And that's an attempt to speak to, I think, a core theme of the book, um, because the book does have vaulting ambition. Um, the subtitle is um, uh, Trying to Build a Better World for All. And the route that he's taken is to try to distinguish between value and the reason for that S in brackets and between values, because he talks about the marketplace and that's the way we normally think of value, the price of things. And in a way, it's a riff on Oscar Wilde's old aphorism that we've become a society that knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And he explores that at great length in various ways, from an economic angle, from a philosophical angle, from a political angle. And he, one of the key theses of the book is actually very interesting because he thinks that that distinction between value and values has become quite corrupted because normally, I suppose, if you, if you ask the philosopher or if you ask an ordinary person in the pub, they would say that anybody starts with the values that we hold dear, the things that we think are important, the things that matter to us, and that where we end up is the marketplace where the price of some of these things, not all of them, but some of them are determined, and, and that the prices of things should be an accurate, in an ideal world, an accurate reflection of our dearly held values. And he said that that's been corrupted because not only do we just focus too much on the price of things and not on the values that should be underpinning them, but because of that focus on the price of everything, it's looping back and distorting and corrupting our values. So in, in that way, it, it's, it's quite a bleak description of what we've done. But personally, I think it's quite accurate. It's very interesting in the context of COVID because it's forced us all, I suppose, in every walk of life to reassess our values, doesn't it? Yeah, and he talks about COVID. Um, he talks about three crises, actually, all beginning with C, the credit crisis, more commonly known as the financial crisis, um, COVID and climate. And all three get equal airtime in the book. But he talks a lot about um, COVID in, in all sorts of different ways, um, in all sorts of interesting ways, actually, because he, he talks very much about the values that, that have been revealed or our lack of values. Um, and he has a broad description of all the different values that he holds dear, and he thinks that we should hold dear. And, and all of them, we, I think, most reasonable people could applaud. Um, but one of, them, um, one of the many things he talks about in, in the context of COVID is resilience and also, in an allied way, preparedness and the way in which we, we weren't prepared, we were prepared for the wrong thing. So yeah, um, it's caused us to have a look at the values that we've had going into the crisis, both in terms of our own personal ones, but also at the government level. And um, he acknowledges, as I think we all would do, that um, it's caused us to, to, to think deeply about were they the right ones and certainly what ones should we hold coming out. 
What about his legacy, uh, Chris? Because he was appointed as governor of the Bank of England in 2013 and spent about seven years in the role. And during that period, I mean, quite a lot happened. Let's let's be honest about it. He was coming to it in the aftermath of the financial crash, but there was obviously a legacy there. Um, there was Brexit, uh, we know about. There was uh, the Scottish independence referendum. And I suppose towards the very end, there was COVID. He left just as COVID was beginning to hit the UK and Ireland and, and other parts of Europe. But a lot of Brexiteers wouldn't have been happy with him um, during the Brexit referendum. I think they would have felt that his interventions were perhaps uh, a bit too political. And uh, the Bank of England also made an intervention, didn't it, in the Scottish independence referendum around the the currency issue, which might have swayed a few voters, who knows. So what do you think overall uh, during his time as governor of the Bank of England, um, how do you think he'll be remembered? What do you think his legacy will be? I think it will be more mixed, partly for the reasons that you've given um, compared to his legacy as governor of the Bank of Canada, because this is the second job he's done in charge of a major G7 central bank. I think he's unique in that regard. Um, And it's worth remarking just how he went from that job to the UK job. He was headhunted by then Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, and he didn't want the job. He actually turned it down and he had to be persuaded to take it. Frankly, I think uh, I wouldn't have wanted the job either um, it, it's because it is such a different atmosphere in, in the UK compared to Canada, two countries that I, I actually do know very well. But the reason why he was headhunted, the reason why he has such a good legacy from his stint as running the Canadian Central Bank is that Canada had a, had a very, very good financial crisis, if I'm allowed to, to say that. Um, that's and that's explored a little bit in the bank in the in the book. Um, I learnt a lot from the book about the financial crisis, and I somewhat arrogantly thought that I'd I'd read it all and seen it all. Uh, I was working in the financial world during during that time, um, so I learnt that they dealt with a blow up in a, in an obscure corner of the Canadian financial markets, for example, very early on in the financial crisis. That really was a canary in the coal mine. Um, an area called um, the commercial paper market. As I say, it's 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 a it's a niche, a niche area. But they they saw it, they dealt with it. But they realised that taught them just how bad it was likely to be, and as a result, they got the Canadian banking system ready. It was much be- better regulated than virtually any other countries, and so therefore didn't have the financial crisis, or at least the extent of crisis that that we had and, and many other countries had. And that's why George Osborne went for him. And, and headhunted him. The, the Brexit thing, he defends himself in the book and, and um, he's done it elsewhere other than the book, both Brexit and the Scottish question, in that he simply says, look, I was asked the question specifically at parliamentary committee hearings where I was grilled by MPs and I could have either dodged the questions that I was being asked or just answered them. So I chose, um, perhaps he didn't say this, but perhaps unlike politicians, who more typically dodge these sorts of questions. I just gave an honest answer, a straightforward answer to a straightforward question. His second defence is that in order to get the British banking system ready for Brexit, he had to make continuous warnings about what it was going to be like. And he stands accused by the Brexiteers of contributing to Project Fear, as it's now called, and all of these warnings from all sorts of people, not just the Bank of England, but the IMF was at it, Barack Obama was at it, the British Treasury, the British Finance Ministry was at it. And of all of the people that made forecasts that amounted to Project Fear, and this has been lost in, in the mists of time and all the noise that's gone around it, the Bank of England actually was the one that got it most right. If you look at their forecasts for what they said would happen post-Brexit, 
they are the ones that have been the most accurate. But as I say, that, that's been largely forgotten. He is in the public's mind, and certainly the Brexiteers' mind, associated with joining in Project Fear. And, um, but I think he's been vindicated, and so, so does he. So I, I, I think his reputation, for the reasons that you've given, is that at, at the popular level, he's tarnished with that brush. But if you dig below the surface, you see that actually he, he, he had a pretty good Brexit war. Just to finish off, you can just give us your synopsis on, on the book, so your, your opinion on the book, because it, it runs to about 600 pages. I think it's over 200,000 words, so it's not for the faint-hearted. Um, you've read it all. Uh, what's your view? Good read? Yeah, I thought it was great. Um, I have to say that uh, I kind of knew what others were going to say of it, and I've read other people's reviews of it. Um, there was a, a, a quite a sneering review of it in the London Times in which the um, the economics correspondent of the times described the economics for example as undergraduate economics in in the guardian um they sneered that it was a level british equivalent of the leaving cert economics both were extremely unfair um and typical of how economics journalists typically um treat uh, this this sort of thing i thought it was a great read it won't appeal to the cynic because it, it, it is about things like values and philosophy and how to live a good life, and how governments should be able to make things better. Things that people, I think, sort of shy away from these, these, in these cynical times. But it is an antidote to cynicism. Um, it's part uh, economics treatise, it's a history lesson, it's a philosophy lesson, but mostly it, it's, it's about uh, how we as a society should organise ourselves to face up to the kind of crises that we seem to face. And as I say, he goes through the financial crisis, the current COVID crisis, and the current and coming climate crisis. And he, he is a climate warrior. He, 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 is the, he is a UN envoy for climate change, one of his many post um, Bank of England roles. He's got several, um, one or two of which are controversial, as I'm sure you know, Kieran. And um, he's a believer. And so it, 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 in my book, it's a fantastic read. It's an education for those, for, for those of us that thought we knew it all. Um, but it's also a manifesto for how things in the post-COVID world could and, and fr quite frankly should be different. I've long subscribed to the idea that many aspects of our system are broken. And whether you agree or disagree with him, this is a manifest manifesto for, for fixing things, a, a manifesto for uh, maybe for for the center to be center politics um, to be reclaimed. Um, critics say that it, it's just a globalist's manifesto. It's a member of the global elite saying, "Look, this is how we tinker around with things and make things better, rather than radically tearing things down." Um, and I think it's very fashionable, either from the left or the right, to want to tear things down because everybody seems to believe these days that the system is rigged. But this is an appeal to to the centrist, saying, "This is how we how we fix things." And whilst it might be idealistic, um, I think it deserves very, very wide readership. And I have to say, I loved it. OK, Chris, thank you for that. Let's listen now to the edited version of your interview with Mark Kearney. And Chris began by asking him about his Irish heritage. Mark Kearney, thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview stroke discussion about your new book today. You and I, we don't have much in common, but actually more than I would have thought. We're both economists by training, um, yes. me, me a long time ago. One of the many differences between us is that you finished your PhD and I did not. And that perhaps explains in part why one of us has had a stellar career and the other um, didn't. One of the unlikely things that we have in common is actually Anglo-Irish Canadian heritage. 
Um, I too have an Irish grandparent. I see from the book that so did you. Yes. Um, I, I, I lived in Ireland for 30 years until relatively recently. Um, and I also carry a Canadian and a British passport. I have Canadian citizenship as well. So um, we have similar sort of heritage. You're welcome anytime. Thank you very much. Yes, it's always nice with this funny accent of mine to be welcomed back to Canada by a customs official saying, welcome home. The only question I got from my editor, the only thing that they've insisted on me asking you is about that Irish heritage thing. It's kind of related to the book because you, it does get a mention. And you mentioned yeah. that your grandfather was from Mayo and he emigrated um, about a century ago. Perhaps you could elaborate a little on that Irish connection. Yes. Um, well, I do mention it, as, as, as you would have seen in the book, um, as part of the way to remain grounded. Uh, it's very easy to uh, think you're very grand if you're governor of the Bank of England and the surroundings and the, and the sort of institutional deference which comes with the, uh, comes with the role. But um, there's various ways I wanted to stay grounded. One of them was a uh, uh, father of a friend of mine, an uh, Irish friend of mine, had uh, he'd given me a map of Mayo, uh, and I put that, that was my one addition um, to uh, the governor's office uh, was to have that so that that's what I would see at eye level as I went out and uh, remind me of uh, my heritage. And um, three of my grandparents are Irish, um, uh, two from Mayo, one from uh, County Cavan. And, um, and they all emigrated to, uh, to Canada roughly around a century ago, as you say. Um, and I recall, I, I, I've got my Irish citizenship um, in the uh, late 1980s. Um, and when I got it, I uh, had to get back my the um, baptismal record, the birth birth record of my uh, my grandfather to establish it. And in that record, his father, so my great grandfather, made his mark. Is, is how it's how it's uh, noted on the baptismal record. So, uh, you know, the idea that uh, you know no schooling a few generations back through to uh, my father was a professor in, um, in Canada. And then, uh, and, and I was very fortunate to get, uh, you know, the education that I did, including, I might underscore that PhD, Chris, not to, not to rub it in. <laughs> so, so, uh, and I grew up in um, uh, obviously Canadian household, but heavily influenced, uh, heavy Irish influence in that household. Sure. Uh, I always look back to Ireland, obviously have visited uh, a number of times and, um, you know, it's part of, it's part of who I, who I am. Great. Thank you for that. Um, to the book. It's a huge book in, in all senses of the word. Um, I, I have it in front of me. It's 600 pages. It's a, it's a very weighty tome. I've actually managed to do a word count on it. 218,000 words. That includes the footnotes, which people it does include the footnotes. I'm glad you knew that. Okay. <laughs> At the outset, I must say I enjoyed every single minute of it and I loved it, in fact. And I, but I wondered whether that was partly because I am who I am with the background that I've got. There's so much in, in it that I could relate to. Um, and it is a hard book to summarize. I hope you don't mind me saying. It's called Values, where the S is in parentheses, conveying at least, I think, one theme of the book, which is the difference between value and values. You have a subtitle, Building a Better World for All. And I think that speaks to the book's vaulting ambition. And I think your main purpose or objective, that building a better world, would that be right? Yes. Uh, I mean, that is the ultimate purpose. Um, and to try to provide um, specific uh, actions um, to back that up, act, you know, for, for leaders, for companies, for investors, and, and, and for countries. Uh, but maybe I'll, I'll say a word about the title. Um, and, you, and, and thank you for working your way through all 200,000 plus, because I, I suspect you did read the footnotes, given your background. 
it's trying to capture uh, the parentheses around the S uh, is this relationship between value and values and the fact that it goes in both directions. Um, so part of the book, it talks about how uh, an, an excessive emphasis on value, value in the market can undermine or um, uh, change the values of society um, and ultimately to the detriment of the market. And um, at the core of the book, as you will have seen, is um, the experience of three crises, the credit COVID and climate. And, and for the first of those, that's what happens. I mean, that's my read of what happens. Part of the social underpinnings of the market get undercut. It leads to this, these excesses, which, um, you know, unfortunately, with which uh, Ireland's quite familiar. Um, but the other, the, the relationships can go in that direction, but it can also go in the other direction. And that's the point I tried to make um, very importantly around climate, which is that when we ascribe a hierarchy of values. So there is greater value to sustainability, which is um, a movement in, in Ireland, um, Canada, elsewhere. Um, then the market can be in service of those values. And the market is one of the key elements in order to, uh, drivers, I shouldn't say elements, drivers to, to accomplish it. And that's what I think we are seeing now. So I'm trying to capture all of that, both thematically through the experience of the crises, but then answer the so what question uh, in the last third of the book. Okay, well, what do you do with this? If you if, if you agree with the thesis and the broad outline of the thesis, what do you do? Running a company or running a country? Yeah, so th that actually cuts to the core of it, I think, in that I, the way I've summarized it in my notes here is that it's part memoir of a central banker. It's partly an economics treatise, and I, I want to explore that a little bit. It's partly a history lesson. It's part an exploration of philosophical themes. But it's mostly, I think, a manifesto for that better world. You actually have some, some practical suggestions, as, as you've just described. And as you've just described, one of the deeper, or at least what I think is a deep proposition of the book, is that, that notion that you've just mentioned, that slavish adherence to market values has changed the social contract, has perhaps warped our values. And you say the, 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 the direction of causation can run in several directions. And if you don't mind, I'm going to quote from the book, which I think is one of the key quotes that, that um, I picked up with, and I'll start. The crises of value that are explored throughout the book, finance, health, climate, those three that you, you've already mentioned, and identity, you add that one in this quote, are not merely the shortcomings of the ability of markets to value. They are also the result of how the encroachment of the market has changed our values. And I think that speaks to, to already something that you've mentioned. And that is the key thesis of the book. An immediate question I think that an ordinary citizen might ask you is whose values and what values? And I think that you do valiantly attempt to um, answer that question. But, you know, you mentioned for, I mean, you, you, you start with the Greek philosophers and you work your way through all to the two modern philosophers, people like um, Sandel, and, but also all the classical economists. And one of those classical economists that you talk about a lot in the book is Adam Smith. And, uh, that prompted me to go and get my uh, copy of Adam Smith. I have a, a 1960 copy. Um, and on the, in, on the inside cover, the original owner's name, it's, it's a fascinating story, actually. The original owner of the, this two-volume edition of The Wealth of Nations was a chap called Dennis Goldberg. His family gave me a present of this book because they received it while he was still in prison. Dennis was, the, uh, was one of the guys imprisoned with Nelson Mandela. Wow. And uh, he did an economics degree while in jail and uh, the books found their way when he'd finished with them. And inscribed on the cover is this cover slips off for inspection so that the prison authorities would uh, have a look to see if there was any seditious material 
on the inside. And I got to thinking about Dennis's values as an anti-apartheid activist in jail for, for decades and the prison warders and the system that had put him in jail. Obviously, that, that, those were two quite different sets of values, sincerely held, one suspects. Luckily, today, we don't ascribe any credence to the values that put Dennis in prison. But we've got a problem with whose values and what are they? When you, when you think about con- the contemporary resonance of that, you've got 75 million Donald Trump voters who presumably would take issue with some or all of the values and, and uh, morals expressed in your book. How do we deal with the question, whose values? Well, um, the part of what I'm trying to do in the book is, as, as I just said, which is to draw on experience and also draw on um, economic and political philosophy um, to build up the values that are necessary for an economy that works for all. So, um, and uh, so at least I can circumscribe uh, the ambition of the book to, you know, a prosperous and inclusive economy. So not just an inclusive economy, but one that actually grows and, uh, and advances. Um, and so the, the, you know, the elements that need to be there, whether it's a resili- elements of resilience in our financial system um, uh, or, or, or more broadly, uh, health systems, others, um, the importance of sustainability in all its guises, not just sustainability from a climate perspective, but um, from a financial perspective, um, uh, fairness and responsibility, um, and of course, also dynamism, uh, a sense of dynamism and, 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 and what's required. How do you balance these values uh, in a way that they're dynamic and then underpinning all of this, uh, this um, importance of solidarity so that we're bringing everyone up as opposed to a subset. Uh, many respects, the reactions, um, uh, and, and I won't go you know, to any specific country necessarily, but the reactions that we've seen um, in terms of, if one says broader populism has been uh, because of the absence of that solidarity, the absence of balance in these, in these values and the outcomes that have um, forced a retreat uh, into, into specifics. So the, there, there is a moral element to these values in terms of the res- I think the responsibility that we have as a, if I can put it as a society um, to provide opportunity and lift up all in society. And, uh, you know, one of the more powerful perspectives on that, literally perspectives on that is you, um, I mean, it's a, it's a quote from uh, the current Pope, but uh, uh, we see most clearly when we see from the periphery. So, uh, you know, the economy from the view of the unemployed or the security services by the view of the, uh, uh, of the oppressed. And if you take that perspective um, and think about well, what are the policies and what are the steps that are, can be taken in order to uh, to address it? Um, you come with these values, and again, what I'm trying to do is not just identify that, but then say, well, what should we do to reinforce these values so that they're actually lived? And we get that balance. And 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 one of the things I hope I'm sure you picked up, but what mm. I'm trying to say explicitly around Adam Smith is that it's great that you have the wealth of nations, uh, and I'm, I suspect you do, Chris. But you also need the theory of moral sentiments, and you need both of those elements uh, in order to have this balance. That's a good point. Um, you, you, the book also contains a fascinating discussion on the history of money, what it is, what it's been historically, and the values, the importance of the values that underpin our sense of what money is. And, and that leads to, I think, a very contemporary resonance, which is that you, you seem not to be a big fan of Bitcoin as a result of it not having much uh, by way of values underpinning it. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not a fan of Bitcoin per se. At least I don't see Bitcoin as being um, the future of money. In other words, a store of value, means of payment, unit of account, fulfilling all the all the roles of money. I do think that um, whether it's Bitcoin or other crypto cryptocurrency crypto assets, I do think they point the way to the future of money. Um, ultimately, uh, money, sustainable money, needs to be backed by the state. Um, and the values underpinning the state. Even the state can mess this up. We've seen examples of that in the past. Um, but I do think that part of the way to get back to the broader objective of building a better world for all, part of the way we can do that is to accelerate uh, development of what's, what are called central bank digital currencies um, and the payment innovations that can come with those. But you don't think that we should all have accounts at the central bank, I think. Well, I don't think we should have account. Well, I think the challenge if we all have accounts at the central bank is we might not have accounts anywhere else. And then all of a sudden. Well, what's wrong with that? We all hate the banks. Uh, well, <laughs> but then the central bank becomes, and this is where we get into you know the limits of knowledge of um, central planners, is that the central bank then becomes, it has to recycle that money into the economy and it either lends to, it chooses the businesses it's going to lend to, or the banks it's going to send the money to in uh, as the intermediaries. Um, and then the central bank is making these allocation decisions. Well, and maybe not the central bank, because you also talk a lot about AI in, in the book later on. And yeah. um, maybe uh, this is one aspect of AI that uh, could help us in that surely the application of some intelligence to the lending decision would help because there's not much evidence of intelligence from past lending decisions. Well, there's very, I mean, what's exciting and... Um, uh, you know, I'm uh, full disclosure. I'm on the board of uh, what is effectively, I mean, it's a, a Silicon Valley based, but an Irish company, uh, Stripe. And these companies that um, what what they can do um, is to use much broader sets of data. Particular, and this is particularly important in two instances: one, if it's a small company, and secondly, if most of the assets are intangible as opposed to you know a factory or uh, or, or property and use that data to help make the lending decisions through machine learning effectively in big algorithms. And that, that can fill a lot of this gap. And so one of the points I make in the book on the, on the policies is what can the central authorities do to facilitate these types of platforms, lending platforms to fill the SME funding gap, which exists in Ireland, definitely exists in Canada. And, um, you know, it's 20 billion pounds in County in the UK. For sure, um, and you talk a lot of in in the in the book about uh, bad behaviour in banks, in particular, and financial services industries in general. Not just in terms of the financial crisis, but it, you provide us with a deep, very interesting historical perspective and a number of great stories and anecdotes about about misbehaviour. And it seems to be part of the system. And we've got a contemporary example of that. But one of Ireland's largest financial institutions has suddenly put itself up for sale because of a financial scandal. And it's just one of a long list of things that have happened to these sorts of institutions globally over, over many years. It seems that it's ingrained in the culture, um, that the values that you rightly describe that the sector mm -hmm. possesses, which, which need changing, which need uh, improving, um, go back, this problem goes back centuries. How fixable do you actually think it is? Uh, I think it's... I think partly these things go in waves, um, and um, and so we we have reactions to these scandals, and lessons can be learned, and governance can be tightened, and uh, things improve, um, and regulation can be improved. Now, one of the points the book makes is there are limits to you know there there are sensible regulations, and there's better codes, and there's 
there's ways to tie compensation to fulfillment of those codes. And that helps and that aligns incentives up to a point, though, up to a point, mm-hmm. because ultimately, as I say, you know, you can't legislate virtue. You have to, has to come in. Yeah. And it has to be part of the culture and the recognition of these broader values, which is how you get into, um, you know, does the financial institution have a purpose? What is the purpose of the financial institution? Is that broadly understood? Is it recognized in society, um, our role as, uh, as, as custodians uh, and, and, and having a responsibility for the broader system? And, uh, and that partly the book is, a, you know, is an appeal around that policies that would reinforce that direction. But of course, they can't fully deliver it. Um, and, um, and, and so it's a, it's an individual and collective responsibility to build it up. I, I, you know, Chris, I would say that there are, there, things are better than they were, Mm. but they are far from where they need to be. And, um, which is why part of the reason why I, I, I wrote the book. Indeed. Um, can I ask you a bit about Stripe and ask you the obvious question? And this is me pretending to be a gotcha journalist. You've joined the board of a financial payments company. Would you, do you under, would you understand somebody who said that's a regulator joining a regulated entity and how does that chime with it, with values? And um, how would you explain that to somebody that's pretty uh, cynical about elites? Um, the reason I joined, I, I joined them for a couple of reasons. There's lots of financial institutions I wouldn't have joined. Um, and uh, those that I directly regulated, um, you'll know that I haven't joined uh, or am not associated with them. So that would be, you know, major banks, major insurers and, uh, and, and the like basically around the world. Um, and I have respect for a number of those, um, but I don't think that it's appropriate that I you know, would, would have done that. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a company that I didn't regulate. Uh, and in fact, it is, um, it is a payments company as opposed to a financial institution. It is a facilitator of uh, actually huge innovation in the financial sector. And it's a facilitator um, uh, of a much, a much more inclusive financial system, ultimately, broadening the financial system. I gave one example uh, with respect to what they do and what they can help unlock for small business uh, finance. Uh, they can unlock much cheaper um, cross-border payments, basically seamless cross-border payments, which is central to uh, more inclusive growth. And they also uh, are very focused through something called Stripe Climate in terms of basically zero carbon fulfillment um, uh, for businesses as well. Um, and, you know, on top of it, they're brilliant guys who um, uh, who will innovate and uh, I'll get out of that. So look, I know finance um, as one of the things sure. I know uh, and I've been in and around all my life. I've restricted what I'm doing in that area to things that um, I didn't have direct oversight to, um, and uh, but which are aligned with my values. And what I care about is, well, who's going to make this system more inclusive and more dynamic at the same time? And the other big issue that I'm focused on is uh, climate change. And so who's trying to be part of the solution for climate change in as big and as impactful way as possible? Uh, moving on the discussion, um... I was fascinated to read your discussion of the great financial crisis because I thought I knew everything about it. I lived through it as a, at that time mm-hmm. as an active participant and I've read millions of words and seen all the movies. Um, so when you talked about the Canadian CP market, I mean, it was, an, it was a thing I, I, I knew nothing about. And more generally, I, re- I, it, I perhaps I was reminded or perhaps I learned for the first time, I'm not quite sure which, of just how close to the edge we came um, systemically, and you, you you mentioned that in a couple of ways, both directly and via anecdote. 
um, Jean-Claude Trichet saying to you, if we don't act in the next hour, all is lost. That's quite a quote. Yeah. And um, yeah. it was quite, think, a, quite an introduction to being a G7 yeah. banker. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if, if only that lesson of just how, how close we came. Um, and, but as I say, I think, I think we, we know um, a lot about the financial crisis and it's fantastically useful to, to reread some of this stuff and to find out some new stuff from the book. Um, but I wonder if you're a bit like, if you're a bit easy on just what steps have been taken in the wake of that. You talk quite rightly about all of the things that you did, all of the things that your colleagues did with respect to regulation in general, and in particular with respect to capital requirements for banks. Yeah. Martin Wolfert, who I'm sure you know well, has argued continuously since the great financial crisis that banks should hold much, much more capital than the regulator currently insists. And that they, you know, until you do this, they're not going to be safe and that their crisis prone nature until they're much, much more backed by shareholders' equity is increased. I'd be interested in your response to that. And secondly, the obvious question, I suppose, is that are the banks in some parts that up to their old tricks and playing the regulator again? And, and perhaps uh, this, this, the re-regulation of banks has stalled or, or going backwards? Well, um, on the capital side, um, we significantly increased uh, the minimum capital requirements, including for the largest, um, in terms of what they could have gotten away with, and some tried to get away with as little as, as, as would have been allowed to what they have to have now uh, by almost 10 times. So, I mean, that's a pretty big increase. And obviously, it was way too low. And uh, 10 times a small number is, you know, is, is, is the number it is. I do think we have seen, um, and not all the information is in, but we've seen some pretty big shocks, including the COVID shock um, that suggests, you know, pretty clear that the market thought the banks um, had uh, sufficient capital liquidity um, in order to withstand this. And, you know, it's been demonstrated, you know, there's, this is an extreme event and there's been extreme policy on the government side as well. But um, I think the, it's, it's, it's all well and good to say that the bank should have a lot more capital without having really rigorously gone through where their exposures are, what their losses could be and, and, and what, um, uh, and what they're actually holding. Um, I felt very comfortable when I left the, the uh, role as governor of the Bank of England that the core of the UK financial system was very well capitalized and appropriately so. Now, but then we get to the second part of your question, if I can link it to the Canadian mm. piece story very quickly, which is, yeah, you didn't hear you didn't hear about it. I mean, there was a lot going on and you were focused on other things. But that's the, that's part of the issue, which is success is an orphan um, in uh, in financial stability. So if you prevent something really bad from happening, you know, people don't know about it uh, or they don't appreciate how bad it could have been. It would, would have been, bad. I mean, you know, there's not the reason you're doing your job, but you, the lesson isn't learned as well. And then you add that to the, the very natural, I mean, the half-life of uh, memory and, and financial services is 10 years at best um, uh, with turnover at best. And then, um, and these risks of capture um, in various jurisdictions by private financial um, uh, institutions, um, and and, it does, and I'm not saying corrupt capture, but also cognitive capture of of of, of the regulator is real. Um, so you forget the lessons of the last crisis. You have these pressures, and gradually rules get chipped away. Listen, I'll be blunt. One of the concerns um, I had over the last few years was that that process was beginning to happen in the U.S. Now it, it, it I think it's been arrested. And that's a good thing, but it shows the need for for vigilance. And and uh, I have huge respect for Martin and uh, a number of other commentators. And um, I'd rather have them arguing um, 
eloquently, vociferously, and consistently for um, greater prudential uh, regulations and vigilance around this, uh, particularly if we succeed and you know, a lot of time yeah. elapses from the last big financial crisis. Turning to COVID and um, the, the way in which it's shown up the values that, as you discuss it in the book. And for you, I think resilience, as much as anything, was shown up to be, to, to be absent and prepared we were not. And I was fascinated by your discussion about how um, there is some evidence, not conclusive, not overwhelming, that countries, the least, country, least corrupt countries on earth were the yeah. ones that did better with respect to a number of things, not least to the extent to which their citizens complied with the restrictions. And you, you had a look at compliance rates. And I think you suggested, linking it all the way back to your discussion, your philosophical discussion almost, that um, the countries that had the most trust in their leadership, like, and I think we're thinking specifically of New Zealand, the least corrupt country on earth as, as measured by at least one survey mentioned in your book, um, had the most legitimacy and were most willing to accept what you call the Hobbesian bargain, that they were willing to sacrifice freedom, uh, sacrifice of liberty for safety. Um, and I sense from what you're saying also that, you, you then, that one implication of that might be, and tell me if you agree with this or not, is that if countries tr tried to do exactly what New Zealand did, might have just had different results as a result of things like not least geographical um, location, but also from the behavior of their citizens. Yeah, um, I, I think you summarized it well, um, that uh, there's some evidence, you can't be conclusive, and obviously we have one, um, one event, uh, but um, trust in, I mean, it's partly, it's an issue of trust in government and, um, and, and uh, perceptions of competence in government. Um, and um, unfortunately, with the virulence of this disease, uneven compliance has proven to be, um, you know, um, a losing strategy um, and has ended up with more severe lockdowns as we've all experienced um, uh, as a consequence. Um, so, I mean, there's almost a universal, almost universal poor preparedness for the pandemic uh, in terms of PPE stockpiles, various things that, that one would need um, and are all obvious to us now. Um, there is differences, appear, apparent differences in compliance. Um, and one, one can take that um, that can that one can take that lesson up to a point in terms of the role of the state and um, and, and a broader point on the state's ability to protect and the importance and and to bring it over to leadership it brings it back to one of the elements of effective leadership I'm sorry to say is competence I mean in the end you can do all the right things as a leader but if you get consistently get things wrong in terms of your your judgments um, you're not going to be uh, you're not going to be followed. You talk about, in terms of fiscal policy, I mean, as a central banker, obviously the monetary response is, has been massive. But um, unlike the financial crisis, or at least initially from the financial crisis, we've had a huge fiscal impact from, from this one. And you talked about three stages of, of uh, moving from an emergency stage all the way through yeah. to um, a capital spending phase. Um, and I looked, looked at that and I immediately thought of Joe Biden. It, it's almost as if Joe Biden read your book. Would, would you agree? <laughs> well, he certainly hasn't. He's been busy. Um, or somebody uh, advising Joe Biden <laughs> has read your book. Because uh, it, it I, looks very like your three-state, given that he does plan to follow up what he's just done, this 1.9 yeah. later on in the year with a massive, he hopes, uh, infrastructure capital spending package. That, that, that's your playbook, isn't it? 
Well, I think it is a yeah, and uh, he's. Um, I'm happy to uh, you know. I, I did write it before he 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 was elected, but I'm happy to give uh, them and the administration authorship if they wish. Um, look, I mean, the economy has needed our economies have needed support. They increasingly need direction. Part of that direction will be with actual ca- uh, capital spending around infrastructure. Part of it, importantly, will be around. Um, regulation and um, and climate policy. And uh, one of the things that, you know, Ireland benefits from and uh, uh, is that EU climate policy is increasingly credible and it's longer term out to 10 years. You think about the internal combustion engine, think mm-hmm. about hydrogen uh, fuel mandates, other things. And that helps the private sector. And this is a point made in the book, the more credible that pathway is for climate policy, the more the private sector brings forward adjustment, smooths it, invests in the you know industries of the future, um, and uh, and reallocates from those of the past, and and that's it. That's as important as the as as the capital spend. Sure, um, Mark Carney, <laughs> thank you very very much for your time. It is much appreciated. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Chris Johns and Mark Carney. The show was produced this week by Suzanne Brennan. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe.